the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Monday show. It's a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions, Bible questions, questions about something going on in your life, church questions, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I'm hoping you had a wonderful day at church yesterday. For us, it was Communion Sunday. We were really, really crowded yesterday, and it's a, uh, I enjoyed the message that I had to give, and I hope people were encouraged, but I uh, hope that was the same where you were, and we hope that people get saved. That's the whole point of what we do and why we do it. Um, here at Calvary Chapel tonight, uh, it's Monday, we will have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies beginning at 7 o'clock. Uh, everybody comes to worship together, uh, and then they go sort of their separate ways. Um, Annette Hinera will be teaching the ladies. Pastor Ken is teaching the men in the book of Hebrews. And uh, he's talking about Melchizedek tonight. Next time he's on the show, ask him about Melchizedek. And uh, Pastor Chris and Pastor Matthew will be with the junior hires and the high schoolers uh, at the same time. So that is tonight. Ladies, uh, you can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com. But it's always better to be here because once the teaching goes off, there's a really neat time of questions and answers and or just sharing uh, about uh, the issues that the Lord brought up during the Bible study. And you can't get that online. So if you are uh, in the area, stop by. We always have room on Monday night. We'd love to have you. Okay, let's get to questions and wait for any phone calls we'd like to have. Our first question today comes from our email inbox. It is anonymous. He says, or she says, on Friday's show, you stated that we know the name of God is Jesus, and it bothers you uh, a bit to hear people use the name Yahweh. Since the letter J didn't come into existence until the 16th century, why do you feel so adamant that Jesus is the name he was called instead of perhaps Yeshua? Now, I didn't say Jesus uh, was the name he was called. Uh, it's Jewish. He would have been uh, Joshua or Yeshua. Uh, Jesus is the English transliteration. Now, um, language isn't static. Language changes. 
And when 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 Joshua or Yeshua um, is transliterated into English, Jesus is the name. And when I said that I'm uncomfortable that people don't use that name, it's because that is the name given to us that describes what he did. It's a name given to us by which we can become familiar with him. And it doesn't matter. As long as you've got the right Jesus, it doesn't matter what name you call him. Now, I also want to clarify something. I didn't say anything about Yeshua. Um, um, you know, the idea that, well, J didn't even exist, and there are people who use it to say, well, Jesus isn't really his name. It really is his name. I have some in-laws. Uh, they are from the region of Macedonia. Uh, I remember being at their house, and I just thought it'd be a great opportunity to witness to them. So I said, you know, I'm studying in the book of Acts, and uh, a lot of the book of Acts occurred in the area where you live in Macedonia. And they looked at me and said, it's not Macedonia, it's Macedonia. So I always call it Macedonia now. It doesn't matter if you say Macedonia and I say Macedonia because that's what the people who are from there say. It's still the same place. And I don't know why we get hung up on the letter J. I think sometimes we just think it's more spiritual uh, to uh, use uh, 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 Yahweh or Jehovah. And those are the names that I mentioned. Yeshua, Joshua is um, uh, perfectly acceptable. uh, And it doesn't really matter uh, when the word, the letter J came into existence and our writer here is right. It didn't come into existence until uh, the 15th or 16th century. So uh, I think that's something. But but we're, 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 we're to get to know him, that's the point. And the fact that Jesus came, uh, the fact that Jesus um, um, came to, to die for our sins, to save us from our sins, that's what's important. Now, let me also say this. This is not germane to the question that Anonymous asked. But There are people who use the name Jesus all the time who don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they they use the word Jesus. They'll use the same language. Yeah, he died for my sins. Um, He's the son of God. They'll use all of that information that is correct, at least partially so. But they don't believe that he is creator God, the one who said, let there be light and there was light. And if in fact that's the case, then they don't have a Jesus they can save. So yes, he's Jesus of Nazareth. He came to reveal the person of the Father to us. Um, But he is also the Son of God and God the Son. And that's the only Jesus anonymous that can save. So um, when I say adamant, I I just, it's, it's, uh, it's, always bothersome to me when Christians try to get Jewish, um, Jehovah or, Yah- or Yahweh, uh, instead, of, instead of the more familiar name, the name that he died to provide for us, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Thank you, Anonymous. I appreciate the question. Here is a question. This one is from Anonymous also. Uh, Pastor Ron, what do you know about Ron Rhodes? I haven't heard it. I haven't been asked about Ron for a long time. I'm considering buying a book he's written, but I am on a limited budget and don't want to spend money on books that are not doctrinally sound. Any advice is appreciated. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you for asking. Ron Rhodes is great. Uh, I recommend a book that he wrote uh, often here. I get questions about uh, pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. He wrote a book called Christ Before the Manger, which is one of my favorite books. And he goes through all of the Bible and and sort of um, illustrates the the, uh, pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. Ron Robes is a a scholar. He is... um, uh, completely orthodox. I don't mean orthodox as a religion, but, but orthodox in the sense that his beliefs are, are, uh, are orthodox, uh, fundamentally sound and correct. Uh, Ron Rhodes used to be... Uh, Ron Rhodes used to be um, connected with Hank Hanegraaff before Hank sort of fell away 
fell off. I, I'm not suggesting Hank's not a Christian, so don't get mad at me. But his doctrine is horrible. But Ron Rhodes was uh, Hank's right-hand man back when the Bible Answer Man was a good show, a show that you could depend on. And Ron did a lot of the research. Uh, his doctrine uh, is impeccable. Um, that doesn't mean we have to agree with everything that he wrote. But Anonymous, I can recommend his books without reservation. I don't know. I haven't checked into him in a long time. But he used to have a lot of information on YouTube that you could also uh, look out, but uh, look up. He's 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 really really solid, and I recommend him. So please have at it and enjoy. You'll thank me later. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. That's area code two one zero, or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Here's a question uh, from Kirby from our email inbox, and I love this question. So I could get really wound up. So if you don't want me to get really wound up, just just call me. Pastor Ron, in the prophecy of the 77s, now he's talking about Daniel chapter 9. He doesn't mention that in the question, but he's talking about the prophecy of Daniel. In the prophecy of the 77s, the angel Gabriel is very specific when he says there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. What is the importance of the first mention of the sevens, uh, seven sevens over the 62 sevens? Um, I know that the total of weeks or years add up to 69 sevens. Uh, counting up to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But what is the first seven or group of seven years or the 49 years refer to specifically? Uh, I love this question because we're living in that time where we, we really need to understand. Now, this is, again, the prophecy of Daniel. Uh, this is sort of the the foundation chapter of prophecy in our Bibles, and it speaks of the end. It speaks very specifically of the time that we live. Now, when Gabriel appeared to Daniel in this vision, when he brought the answer to uh, Daniel's prayers, um, he was giving him a timeline from the time of the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, we know Artaxerxes did that. That was in 445 B.C., in the month that would uh, equate to our month of March. Um, That order was issued, and from that day there will be 77s. And the 77s then is all the way to the very end. But there's something interesting that he does here. He said the seven sevens, sixty-two sevens, and that makes sixty-nine sevens. Well, what happened to the seventy-seven? Well, the seventy-seven is the time that we're living in now, and Daniel had no ability to understand or comprehend that. It's the time of grace, and there's no specific time set. We're in this period of grace. We've been in this period now for a little over two thousand years, so. Before the seven sevens and the 62 sevens were complete, at the end of all of that, that's when Jesus had to appear in Jerusalem for the very first time, publicly be, be, being declared as the Jewish Christ or the Messiah. You remember, Jesus would always say, don't tell anybody what I've done for you. My time or my hour has not yet come. Well, that was his hour. Now, according to the much-accepted scholarship of Sir Robert Anderson in his classic book, now more than 100 years old, of The Coming Prince, the date of what we call Palm Sunday or the Triumphal Entry was April 6, 32 A.D. So here's what we know. From March of 445 B.C., there was 69 sevens. If you do the math, remember that uh, the Jewish calendar had 360-day years rather than 365-day years. Um, uh, That means there was 173,880 days. So Jesus' schedule, his time frame was very specific. Now, that matters to us because if Jesus would have come in a day early or a day late, then this prophecy would have fallen apart. So it was on that day when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding a donkey, just as that was also predicted by the prophets, and he was acclaimed as the Jewish Christ. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they shouted. Well, that was the fulfillment of that prophecy. 
Now, let's break up the seven sevens and the 62 sevens, because the seven sevens, that 49-year period of time, that would have been the time to rebuild Jerusalem and the walls around it. And then when that was complete, then and only then did the prophetic clock start all the way down to the end. And then Daniel is told after the seven sevens and the 62 sevens or the 69 years, he, the Messiah, will be cut off with nothing. And that is as clear a reference to his crucifixion, his death, as you can possibly find in all of Scripture. So Daniel chapter 9 is absolutely magnificent. Um, one of the comment I would like to make, you know, when when the prophecy is given to Daniel in chapter 9, the answer isn't delivered to him until the chapter 10. And it's we're told that there was a war in the heavens. And while the angel was bringing the answer to the to the the vision, given Daniel the meaning and the understanding, um, God had to dispatch Michael, the archangel. And Michael is the one who would combat Satan because there was great interference. The enemy did not want that understanding of the prophecy uh, to be public information. And so he tried to stop it. And, of course, when God sends Michael, Michael always wins and the information comes. But he had to wait 21 days. As soon as you begin to pray, the answer was sent. But, well, there was this war in heaven. So it's a really, really neat prophecy, uh, Kirby. Thank you for asking about it. And uh, we are in that now period of grace, that, 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 that time he was cut off between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel. And when I say weeks, it's groups of seven years. And the only prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled in this particular prophetic time is the Great Tribulation. So that is the final seven years on earth as we understand it. So that's what it's all about. What a wonderful, wonderful prophecy and promise it is. And guys, just trust me, Jesus is coming soon. We need to be ready. Okay, Marty wants to know, Pastor Ron, what do you think is missing in the church culture? Um, Marty, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by the church culture. I can tell you what I think is missing in the church. I think the most important thing missing in the church is um, a, a, a commitment. I mean, a diehard devotion to the teaching of the Word of God. We talk about it. We use Bible verses out of context. We teach cute little topical studies and then try to find Bible verses to validate what we're saying. I think what's really missing in the church culture that we live in, Marty, is a commitment to the expositional teaching of the Word. It is one of the distinctives of Calvary Chapel. It's why I'm such a so honored and privileged to be a part of the Calvary Chapel movement. But it's also what is the focus of what we do here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. So it's really important that we understand the word, the word, the word. Every good thing that's happened here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio uh, in the almost 29 years that we've been here, every single good thing is because of the word of God being taught and the Spirit of God working through the Word of God it has nothing to do with my presentation or the presentation of any of the other pastors. It is simply the Word of God proving fruitful. So I think that is the thing that's missing the most. Let me also add this, Marty. I personally think that from most pulpits, uh, exhortation is missing. You know, we can be, even those of us who, who are expositional preachers, we can tell you what it says, we can tell you what it means, but I don't think that there is a call to action. I think the application part of the Bible study is so vital. I want, when I'm teaching the Word, I want our people to be able to go out and use what they learned that very day not only to change their lives and change and empower their ministries, but also, Marty, to change the lives of the people that they're ministering to. So I think exhortation is missing. Uh, I can I can dazzle people with information. Uh, I could I could just go online and find out all of the the facts. I could read the facts. Uh, 
but the people sitting in the churches need to understand, well, what am I supposed to do with this information? And basically, Marty, it's a call to holiness, which brings up something else that I think is missing in the church culture that we live in. I think the pursuit of holiness is missing. I think we have so dumbed down teaching on sin. I don't think we who are believers understand how utterly or completely sinful our sin really is. And we make excuses for it. I was sharing yesterday to the church that there are times, you know, we we just think our sins, it was a communion Sunday, so I was able to talk about this. You know, we just think, well, grace, 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 God just oh, forgives our sins. And it's almost as though he overlooks our sins. You know, we do stuff that we know we're not supposed to do. We don't get judged right away. And we we kind of believe that God understands us. Or people will say, well, God knows my heart. I know I shouldn't do this. But, and I tell people all the time, it should terrify you that God knows your heart. So I think the pursuit of holiness is something that only comes from the teaching of the word. So, Marty, that's what I think is missing in the church culture. We need to be participants rather than spectators. The idea that we can go to church once a week or even twice a week. The idea that we can go to church and, boy, God's really happy with me is nonsense. God wants you to take what you learn in church, the equipping of the saints, and he wants you to take that and put it into action, put it into practice. Paul says, if you do that, that demonstrates you're a mature Christian. And we need to serve. We need to serve. I was so blessed yesterday. We had some, some a family, uh, and, and, you know, I see the, the parents all the time. Uh, but when I see the parents, I say, so where are the kids? I say, well, you know, they, they want to be here all three services, so they're serving. The kids are serving. They, they they go to their church, the children's church service. They'll sit in my service, one, one service, and then they serve a third service. That's what we need to do in these last days. Um, Sunday's not our day. It isn't a day of rest from Jesus. It's a day of rest from work. It's a day of rest from things of the flesh. It's a day where we can say, Lord, boy, today you get to use me. Let me take just another minute on this. Um, Paul and I, and and this just kind of the way we talk about, we got home from church yesterday. And and all I could think about, Marty, was, was what an honor and a privilege it is to be asked by God to do what I do. Yesterday was... Uh, our 11th birthday for Malta Medical. Now, for those of you who might be new to the program, Malta Medical is our free doctor's office. We have our church, a free family practice doctor's office, fully staffed, great nurses, great doctors, a nutritionist, um, um, and, and we've been open 11 years. Yesterday was our 11th birthday. And in those 11 years, they have seen literally thousands thousands of patients. People have been ministered to, people with no money, no insurance, and they can come. Doctors take the time with them to talk to them and listen to them. Um, Every patient gets the gospel. Every patient gets prayed for. They don't like it. We just say, well, look, that's what we do. If you can find a doctor cheaper and better than us, go for it. And of course, they, they want to do that. We have a very large LGBT BTQ um, community patients who come here and they know they're going to get the gospel. They know we're going to tell them that what they're doing is wrong and that there's a better way. But they keep coming anyway because they know they're loved. They know they're treated well. And yesterday was the 11th birthday and I just thought, Lord, who are we to be able to do this? By the way, this ministry is 100% supported by the church. Nobody pays anything except us. And that's just God's way of reaching out to these people, saying, I love you. 90% of the people that come to Malta Medical 
That comes from Acts 28, which I'm going to be teaching this next Sunday. So I'll be sharing a little bit of this story. Uh, 90% of the people that come are not from our church. We thought 90% of the people that come would be from our church. It's just the opposite. And it's wonderful to see um, people getting saved. And for Paula and for me, we're able to sit and talk and just say, Paula, imagine that God would entrust us with this. Well, that should be true, Marty, for everybody who sits in any church, that God has called you to minister to the people that he loves so much he died for is an un speakable blessing and we need to focus on that the thing is we got to be involved we got to be involved church isn't a place for a show or a performance church isn't a place to go just because there are people you love although there will be people you love there and that's great church is where you go to sort of get filled up so you can give out what God has given you And I think that emphasis is missing in our church culture. So I hope that makes sense. Thank you very, very much. Uh, We've got, I don't have time for another question. This half of the program, we're about out of time. Uh, We'd love your live calls and questions. 210-340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. You are listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back. After the fastest two minutes in the history of the world, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, 340-9585. That's area code 210 and toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Let me tell you a very quick story and then we'll get to uh, more questions. Uh, We've been teaching on Sundays the last couple of weeks uh, about storms of life. You know, Paul um, going to Rome and the shipwrecks and the the, the, the horrible sailing conditions and, and all of the troubles and the difficulties. And, of course, the, the application for us is we go through these storms of life. And believe me, every time you take a step of faith, there are going to be storms. Let me prove it to you. As you know, we've been talking about our new building. We We have been blessed by the Lord and... And uh, we are we're trying to get moved into a new building. It'll it'll take until uh, the end of July probably uh, this year to get the construction done. Please pray for us. Pray for provision. But um, yesterday we got word that our building was broken into and vandalized, and uh, they went in and sprayed the fire extinguishers all throughout the place, and they emptied all the fire extinguishers. It looked like it snowed inside the building. Of course, we had some people there yesterday to try to clean it up. But I mentioned all of that to, to, to say two things. First, when you take a step of faith, expect that there's going to be warfare. There's going to be opposition. It's not unusual. Uh, Peter, James, they all say the same thing. Don't be surprised at the painful trials that you're suffering. That's part and parcel of walking with the Lord. But the other reason that I want you, uh, I wanted to share that with you is just to ask for your prayer. Just ask for your prayer. Now, I was teasing, sort of, with the church yesterday because I said, you know, I've been praying for the people that did. I don't understand that kind of vandalism. It was hard work to break into the place and do all that. You know, that's not fun. It's hard work. And they got dirty and I just don't understand. There was nothing in there of value that they could steal. And I'm just thinking, why would they do that? And so I said, Lord, maybe strike them with leprosy. You know, the temporary leprosy, like Miriam. You know, she did something wrong. She was stricken with, but but then she got healed very quickly after that. So that's that's just Lord, show yourself powerful. 
these people that want to stop the work that you're doing. So um, we at Calvary Chapel would appreciate your prayers. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question that just came in from Jill on our mobile app. Pastor Ron, you were talking about Michael the Archangel being dispatched by God to stop Satan from disrupting the message to Daniel. Do you think, even though he's not mentioned specifically, that the angel who sees the dragon in Revelation 20 um, is Michael? Um, Jill, we cannot be dogmatic about that because it doesn't say, but I think you're right. I really do believe that that uh, um, angel is Michael the archangel. Uh, I believe, you know, I think sometimes we have the misimpression that, um, you know, the devil and Jesus are equal opposites. And that's simply not true. Michael and Lucifer, who is the devil, they were equal opposites. And uh, we know that every time that Michael is dispatched, God's word gets through. And so I I personally think that uh, this is Michael, although we can't know that for certain. Good thoughts. Good, good study, Jill. Appreciate it very, very much. Rich says, I know we don't follow the Old Covenant, so why do we need to read the Old Testament? Rich, if you don't read the Old Testament, you're missing out on the majesty and the wonder of the Word of God. Now, this picture has always worked for me, Rich, so I hope it works for you. Uh, I view, you know, remember, I'm old, and so when I was a kid, they had these. They had the Connect the Dots coloring books. And you'd connect the dots, find the one, the two, the three, and pretty soon a picture would begin to develop, and and you'd, you'd be able to know what it was. And then you'd color the insides of the outline that you made of whatever the image was. Well, the Old Testament is like the connect the dots. It draws an outline. It gives you a picture of a picture. And the New Testament fills in that picture with details and more information and, and, and inspiration. But the Old Testament, Rich, is uh, so valuable to us. Um, most of the prophetic language in the Bible comes from the Old Testament. Um, we want to be certain that the Bible is truly the Word of God. Well, no other religious book in the history of the world has ever tried to predict the future. Only God does it, and he gives himself an impossible standard. If one thing, major or minor, one thing isn't fulfilled, then it's a false prophecy and we don't have to pay attention. So God is simply demonstrating the supernatural power of his word. The Old Testament is consistent with the New Testament. Now, clearly, God is speaking to different people different ways at different times. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in diverse or various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in Son. So in the Old Testament, we get, again, the outline. In the New Testament, we get all the details. And the stories are so valuable. Now, I don't mean to sound arrogant here as I say this, but I was listening to a Bible study on a radio show, uh, one of my own radio shows, and I was teaching from the book of Nehemiah. And I was just thinking, wow, that's pretty good. Now, again, I'm not being arrogant or boastful, but, but, but there's just so much information. And that's true in every book. Uh, the, the, the most fun book to teach in the Old Testament is the book of Judges. The character studies in Judges are worth the price of admission. So um, it's just really important. And I I think another thing, Rich, is when we read the Old Testament, we see the unyielding nature of the law of God. One of the things that it ought to produce in us is an overwhelming sense of gratitude that Jesus picked up the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. And of course, we know that new covenant is a covenant of grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. So Rich, that's why we need to read it. We need to enjoy it and be in awe of just the power of God. Let me also add this. I'd be remiss if I didn't. 
The book of Genesis is the foundation for everything. And so Genesis matters so very, very much simply because it shows us from the beginning God's intent, uh, demonstrates God's power, demonstrates God's holiness, demonstrates how much God hates sin. Just the first 10 or 11 chapters of Genesis is all about our faith. And if we want to understand how we got where we are right now, it began in those 10 or 11 chapters. So, Rich, that's why we need to read the Old Testament and learn to enjoy it. Now, I will be honest and say there are parts of it that are tedious. We just finished a Bible study here at our church um, through the book of Leviticus. And there are parts of Leviticus that can be really, really tedious. And we read and say, well, this doesn't make any sense. But every word is inspired by God. Every word has meaning and value. And from even Leviticus, Rich, the Lord will speak to your heart about your life, meeting you where you are. So I hope that answers your question. I hope it somehow exhorts you to to open your Bible and just read it, become familiar with it. Don't worry about all the unanswered questions. Just first get familiar with it. Just read it. And then later, as God, what's your appetite for it? With the help of the Holy Spirit, you can really dig in and be blessed as a result. Thank you, Rich. I appreciate it. Pamela says, I feel guilty when I don't study my Bible or pray. Is God okay if there are times when we just do something fun? Well, two things, Pamela. One, never feel guilty. Guilt is from the enemy. You know, uh, condemnation. Romans 8, one says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, I don't want you to read your Bible because you'd feel guilty if you didn't. I want you to read it because it has the words of life. The same thing is true with praying. Imagine If you called somebody who thinks they're important, you would never get past their answering exchange. But you can talk to God. You can talk to the Lord Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it is an honor and a privilege to be able to do so. But if you have real life, there are things in your life that are fun Why would you feel guilty about those things? God's fun. He wants you to have fun. There are things that we enjoy. He certainly doesn't expect us to be in the Bible 24 hours a day. You know, when Paul says pray without ceasing or pray continually, it's in the the active present tense, um, meaning it never stops. Um, It doesn't literally mean that we're to be in a dark room or on our knees uh, 24 hours a day. Um, it, It just means that We need to be aware of the presence of God. We need to be in constant conversation with God. And here's what I found, Pamela. I have found God is with me when I'm resting. The older I get, the more rest I need. I found that God is with me when Paul and I are having fun, no matter what it is we're doing. God is there. And you're going to find that Jesus is pretty fun to hang around with. So um, the idea that that you feel guilty uh, if you're doing something fun or something that isn't immediately related to the Word of God or prayer. You know, I'm not doing something religious. That condemnation comes from the enemy. So just enjoy it. And the more you enjoy it, the more you will do it. And those times will equip you for the times that you are having fun. And by the way, when you're having fun, Jesus is with you. Just never forget that. He's with you. I mean, if fun is going to a bar, Jesus doesn't want to go there with you. So you don't want to do that. You'll want to do the things that he wants for you. And those are going to be great things. Fellowship with other believers, uh, sharing the gospel with unbelievers, whatever it is, Jesus being with you is going to guarantee that you're going to have a great time. In his presence is the fullness of joy. And uh, so God would say, let's have fun together. So don't feel guilty. Just enjoy what God has done. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. 
Mickey says, Pastor, can you explain Romans twelve fifteen for me, please? Uh, let me read it. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. You know, Mickey, uh, this is simple, but it's not simple to apply. Um, when um, things are going well in your life, um, it's easy to rejoice. When things aren't going well in your life, it's not so easy. It's a battle. It's a war. And we got to fight to be able to do that. Now, the context here is is uh, being a servant of God. And when somebody has something that they're really happy about, then you can be happy with them because of what God is allowing in their lives. Let me give you an example that I think fits this verse perfectly. Uh, Mother's Day, every year, uh, we give mothers a rose here at Calvary Chapel. And I, I don't do a Mother's Day message, but, um, you know, we acknowledge them. It's a good thing. Well, there are a lot of women who want to be mothers who can't be. And we've actually had women who say, well, I never come on Mother's Day because it makes me feel so bad that I, I can't have my own children. Well, we need to be able to grow up. We need to be able to, to, to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And then when we come alongside, in this case, women who wanted kids and couldn't have them, we need to be able to grieve with them or mourn with them. One of the phenomena, and this has happened for, gosh, all the 28 plus years that we've been here. Um, we have this pattern. We have a bunch of babies born here, but we have this pattern. Uh, somebody will die and go to be with Jesus. And then a baby's born. And, you know, one minute you're grieving and crying and in a lot of pain. The next minute somebody's calling you say, Pastor, my wife is pregnant and, and, and they're just rejoicing. And that's just the way the world works. So regardless of how we feel, if you don't feel like you have anything to rejoice over, we can rejoice with others who do have something to rejoice over. And if we're on top of the world and we come to a brother or sister who's in pain, they've suffered loss, then we can put our arms around them and cry with them. And that's what that means. You know, uh, one parent can brag about their children accomplishment while another parent is is brokenhearted because their child has just announced that they're gay or that they're trans or or um, that they want to live in sin with somebody they're not married to. And it's possible, and we are called to rejoice and mourn as the situation fits. Thank you for the question, Mickey. I appreciate it very, very much. Anonymous. Oops, I got a phone call. Let me go there first. Thank you, producer. We've got Lennon on line one. Lennon, good to hear from you. Thanks for calling. Hello, Pastor Ron. Hi, Lennon. Uh, I have a question concerning Melchizedek. It says that he was the king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God. And it also says that he had no lineage. So I'm just wondering where he came from and or who he was. <laughs> Lennon, thank you for that. I can I can hype Pastor Ken's Bible study tonight in Hebrews chapter seven. Um, Melchizedek, the the fact that he was the Prince of Peace. Now the the word is Shalom, or the Prince of Salem would be how we would transliterate it in English. Um, that he had no beginning, no end, no lineage. Um, it seems to suggest uh, also the King of Righteousness. Um, it would suggest that he just sort of popped up. I'm sure Pastor Ken will share this tonight, but but um, I think the majority opinion, and certainly my very strongly held opinion, is that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ on earth. Abraham was all alone in the world. I mean, he had family and people around him, but, but um, you know, he was in a bunch of battles. And uh, after a particularly great victory that the Lord gave him, Melchizedek shows up and breaks bread, and Abraham worships him. Now, if Melchizedek was a person, Abraham certainly wouldn't have worshipped him. He worshipped by giving him 10% of the spoils from the victory that God supplied. In other words, God, you gave me the victory, so this comes back to you. 
And um, I believe that Abraham was talking to Jesus. Remember that Jesus, speaking to the religious leaders, uh, they said, Abraham is our father. And he said, well, if Abraham were your father, um, you would believe in me. And and Jesus told him that before Abraham was, I am. And I believe this is when Jesus met Abraham. And this is in a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ on the earth. I mentioned at the beginning of the program, we had a question uh, from Jill about Ron Rhodes. Um, I can't recommend highly enough his book, Christ Before the Manger. If you want to really dig in and investigate the pre-incarnate appearances of Christ, you know, he appeared to Gideon's parents, he appeared to Gideon, he appeared to Abraham, of course, uh, he appeared to Samson's parents. Uh, there are times we can go through and we can see that Jesus appeared. Whenever you see the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus. Whenever he receives worship, not an angel, but the angel, a definite article, it's Jesus. And and we know that because they always worship him. And, and an angel would not accept worship. Well, Melchizedek was worshipped. And pretty clearly we know he's God. You know, the pictures of Jesus are striking, Lenin. Um, Jesus um, has no lineage. Uh, certainly uh, Mary did and, and Joseph did. We have records of those genealogies. But uh, Jesus, his father, wasn't a human. His mother was, but his father wasn't a human. And uh, a, uh, to Abraham, Melchizedek just appeared out of nowhere. We know um, he was the the uh, a prince of righteousness, um, the king of Salem, um, without genealogy. A priest after the order of Melchizedek, his priesthood was not Levitical. So, uh, Lynn, and all that to say that um, we're looking at a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. And Pastor Ken will have fun with that tonight. 340-9585. Oh, we only have five minutes. I didn't realize I'd talked that much. Um, here's an anonymous question. I know God will answer our prayers if they are in his will. I've been praying for a family member to get saved. And she is into really dark things. Why isn't God answering that prayer? Well, Anonymous, this is important. We've got to understand the balance between the ability to choose free will and the desire of God. We know that God doesn't want anyone to perish. That's what Peter says. Um, but he wants all to come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, the problem is God won't force us to make that choice. We have to choose our own free will. And while it's clear that that, uh, God wants your family member to repent and get out of the darkness into the light and come to him, um, he'll do everything he can except force her to. He'll stop short. Now, I've got an unsaved son, Anonymous, and I I want him in heaven. I know God wants him in heaven. But here's the, the thing. We've got to rest in the justice, the goodness, the fairness of God. Imagine how unloving it would be if God forced people to love him or to serve him. That's a choice we have to make. And the idea that, well, God wants her saved and I want her saved, so this should be done, um, is to misunderstand the doctrine of election and the doctrine of free will. So uh, that's the answer to your question, Anonymous. He's hearing your prayers. He's making it difficult for her. her. Her life may get darker and darker and darker because that's what happens when we resist him. But believe me, he wants her saved even more than you do. Here is a question from Ivory. This will be the last one we make. We get today. Will Enoch be one of the two witnesses from Revelation since he didn't die? Ivory, there are people who say that because it just makes sense. Well, we know that Elijah didn't die. He was taken up in a whirlwind. And Enoch didn't die. So they must be the two witnesses from Revelation. Um, Unfortunately, that's not right. Enoch didn't die. He went to be with the Lord. He was a great, great saint of God, walked with God for 300 years, and then he was no more. But he's not one of the two witnesses. The witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Now, Elijah, we know for sure, 
Elijah must come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Um, but Moses, uh, though not mentioned by name, is clearly the other. Moses represents the law. Elijah, the prince of prophets, represents the prophets. Jesus said, the law and the prophets, they testify of me. And that's exactly what the two witnesses are going to do. They're going to testify of Jesus. It was Moses and Elijah that were on the Mount of Transfiguration together. So though Moses died, God buried him himself. No problem for God to, to, to have Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it won't be a problem for God to have Moses as one of the two witnesses in the very, very last days, the, the, the uh, seven-year Great Tribulation. And in fact, their ministry will occur during the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Then they will die. They will be killed. God will allow that to happen. Their bodies will be desecrated through the streets for three days while the whole world parties. Those troublemakers are finally dead. Uh, and then life is going to come back in their bodies. They're going to ascend into heaven. And I think all of the people who are celebrating their death in one gulp are going to say, uh-oh. And they're going to know they're in real world trouble. Jesus will come after that. So, Ivory, that's the answer. Um, Moses and Elijah, uh, and it fits perfectly, even the, the judgments that come from them during the first three and a half years of the tribulation when they come to try to arrest them, um, even those judgments are, are similar to the things, calling down fire from heaven, those things Moses and Elijah did. Great question. Thank you very, very much. Hey, thanks for tuning in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. A reminder that we have... Um, our Bible studies tonight at uh, 7 o'clock, men's, women's, and youth Bible studies. Uh, if um, you want to attend, we would love to have you. You will be blessed. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.